Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. It is October 23rd and I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana. And our guest this week is uh, actually a repeat guest. Uh, Her name is Ellen Jimerson and we had her on, I think, in June of last year to talk about her upcoming movie, but now... Um, Her documentary movie is going to be released to the public uh, on November 2nd in a little over a week. So really excited to have her back on. Um, She is an award-winning filmmaker. Uh, She has a master's in Southern history from Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and a Ph.D. in 20th century U.S. history from the University of Houston in Texas. Um, She also has a master's in theological studies from Vanderbilt University, with a concentration in Latin American liberation theology. Um, And she is an ordained Baptist minister um, as well. And uh, her movie is The Second Cooler is the name of it. It's a documentary about illegal migration shot primarily in the states of Alabama and Arizona, as well as in northern and central Mexico. And uh, I'll let her uh, talk about... uh, what the movie is about and things like that, but it's a really compelling documentary and I hope everybody will get a chance to see it once it's released or find a way to go see it. And um, so my guest is Ellen Jimerson and and I'll introduce her now. How are you doing, Ellen? I'm doing good, Keith. It's nice to be back with you. Yeah, and we're excited to have you back on the show. And I think in a year's time or a, a little over a year's time, the, the contours of some of the debates have changed. Um, I think immigration, illegal immigration, as it were, has become a big public focus with some of the presidential campaigns running, even though they're running on disinformation, certainly putting it back in the spotlight, and also some of the trade agreements and other things. So it's it's right. definitely a hot-button issue. So the timing of the mm-hmm. release is, I think, significant, uh, even if it wasn't planned that way. And <laughs> I mean, these things were an issue last year, too, but I think they're even more in the sort of public eye now. And so um, your movie, The Second Cooler, is scheduled to be released, like I said, on November 2nd. And maybe um, for our listeners, could tell us a little bit about yourself and, and a little bit about the movie. Uh, well, a little bit about me. I mean, you you did a good job of, re- of reviewing my um my academic credentials um, and the fact that I'm also an ordained minister with an interest in liberation theologies. So my movie really, uh, The Second Cooler, really kind of brings all that together. I mean, it's an exercise in historical scholarship, but as you know, since you've watched it, there's, um, there's a subtle, I think it's subtle, but important sort of religious um, uh, theme uh, in there primarily visually uh, through the repeated use of crosses which you see a lot uh, on the wall at the border and uh, it just uh, it was just a motif that I wanted to introduce. In other words, I wanted a sort of crucifixion um, question to be there for people who wanted it but not be imposing for people who didn't want it or are not interested in that in that kind of interpretation or that kind of thing. Uh, so that's what it does. And what I wanted to do really was the you know I'm the kind of movie the kind of person I never even took pictures of my kids. I don't own a camcorder. Um, <clears throat> I didn't set out to make a movie. What I set out to do was. Uh, people were urging me to find a way to reach a broader audience uh, because I was saying things to them about immigration that other people were not. And so I thought that was a good medium for doing it. Um, But what I actually wanted to do in the movie and what I had been trying to do before, just talking and writing, was to kind of bring into sharp focus the major aspects of immigration uh, illegal immigration, many of which are not being discussed at all as having any uh, connection the one to the other. For example, as you say, uh, the new free trade agreements are in the news now, as is illegal immigration, but I don't hear anybody connecting the dots. Uh, 
uh, say, you know, what, one of the things I wanted to bring out is that the primary push factor behind this recent um, this recent, I hate to use the word like surge, but this recent numbers, high numbers of people crossing the border from Mexico and Central America illegally, uh, almost no one who's looked at it closely disputes the fact that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was the primary push factor behind that. So I think we have to, when we think about immigration, if we're not thinking about trade agreements, we're not really thinking about immigration. Uh, we're just totally missing the point. So we can't be encouraging the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, and saying we need to do something to help people who have been displaced. It, it, it just doesn't work like that. The one thing cancels out the other. Uh, I wanted to bring that. I want to bring help people understand about NAFTA and free trade agreements generally because I also have a sequence in there on what free trade did to um, to the to, uh, to American economies, and I did that by focusing on Fort Payne, Alabama, which used to be the sock capital of the world, and now uh, as it as it thought of itself, and now those sock factories are gone to the Dominican Republic, um, in no small part because of the Central American Free Trade Agreement. So I wanted to really help people understand too that it's it's not just about Mexicans and Salvadorans is about Alabamans and Montana Montanans and, and people in the United States as well. We have a common problem, and once we understand that, we can find a solution that benefits all of us. I also wanted to help people to understand that our southwestern border is heavily militarized. Um, I mean, there are 12 or 18-foot high um, uh, fence uh, walls down there. There are high-definition uh, camera, stadium lights, uh, 22,000 agents or so on the border. Everywhere you turn in Arizona, you're going to see Border Patrol well up, uh, well north of the border into into Tucson, for example. And I wanted to help people understand that the border was militarized not because of terrorism, but because of NAFTA, because the, the people who signed the agreement knew that they would be displacing people, so they militarized the border to displace them. Um, and I wanted people to understand that that has been a the cause of thousands of migrant deaths. So these are some of the things I wanted to bring into focus, and I also wanted to help people understand what the guest worker program is, since that is often uh, cited even by people like Luis Gutierrez as a good solution to uh, illegal immigration. Um, and in fact, it's a program of indentured servitude. And uh, Mary Bauer, uh, I think, makes, does, who's an attorney, she was with the Southern Poverty Law Center. She's now with another organization. But one of the key um, attorneys in the country who understands the program and she has said it's nothing uh it, that it comes perilously close to human trafficking and indentured servitude um so maybe that will get us started keith yeah and yeah and there's so much to cover there uh, one thing too i was going to mention for our listeners that kind of peripherals to the overall discussion but for people who are interested in in Star Power, there is also a, a the person narrating the the documentary is Martin Sheen. So, <laughs> you know, if if, if that's something that interests you, that's another reason to listen. Big 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 guy there. Big guy with a great voice, and um, yeah, I can't believe I didn't uh, say that first thing. But thank you for doing that. Yeah, Martin Sheen actually came on the project uh, just a few months after we started, uh, and he was just fantastic and very wonderful and gracious to me and did an um did an outstanding job yeah so that's exciting and one thing too I, that i wanted to bring up you mentioned louis gutierrez and the guest worker program and i think one thing we talked about quite a bit in 2014 but i think it's worth revisiting is that a lot of the policy debates surrounding immigration reform even by people that we might call supporters of comprehensive immigration reform or people that might be considered liberal or progressive in the Congress. A lot of 
even a lot of their positions or what they call immigration reform, I think, seems to be misguided. I think a lot of it's overly focused on, quote-unquote, enhanced border security and other harsh measures. There's also the guest worker program, which is, like you mentioned, very problematic. Can can you describe maybe some of the shortcomings of what's considered immigration reform and also what a more humane immigration policy might entail? Sure. Well, I think it's very helpful. This, this is something, Keith, that just puzzled me no end. Why it is that people ostensibly on the left, ostensibly liberal, are backing a a package, a comprehensive immigration reform package, Senate Bill 744 that actually passed through the Senate um, a couple of years ago. Uh, It is a package that moves the entire system to the far political right. And I'm just baffled as to why it's getting the kind of support that it is. If you look at the title of the bill, it's the Border Security Economic Opportunity and Immigration Modernization Act. Border, it's primarily a border militarization package. So the primary beneficiaries are going to be the people who get the military contracts on the border. That's laid out in black and white. Completely securing the border is the trigger that leads to Uh, the so-called path to citizenship, which is what immigration modernization is about. Um, Meanwhile, you've also got this economic opportunity aspect of the package, which is just um, fancy footwork, a way of disguising what servitude is when you call it economic opportunity. It It is a plan to extend the guest worker program. And the guest worker program is nothing short of indentured servitude, whereby big corporations primarily bring over people, contract to them and to them alone. By law, they cannot leave that that employer who brings them over if the employer is abusive or doesn't pay the wages that were promised or brings somebody over ostensibly to plant trees and actually wants them for sexual favors. That worker cannot, by law, leave. That is so close to slavery. You know, I I cannot understand, uh, for the life of me, how people that have, you know, authentic slavery in their background do not find this reprehensible. Uh, this is this is purely human trafficking, um, and then even the uh, immigra- immigration modernization part part of the package is about this path to citizenship. The problem with the path to citizenship is that it is riddled with fines and uh, fees and exceptions, and at the very least would take 13 years. But there's no guarantee at the end of that. And in order to get on that path, you've got to turn yourself in to the very department that's oriented to deporting you, the Department of Homeland Security. So how this qualifies at any level, aggressive, much less a liberal package, is beyond me. And so you ask yeah, me what would look better. Yeah, it's a path. <laughs> It's very perilous when the first thing you have to do is to come out. Um, I know when um, Janet Napolitano was announcing DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, she said, this will bring people out of the shadows. We will know who they are and where they are. Now, if I had been in the shadows safely, you know, for a number of years, I don't know why, I don't know that I would be, I might come out if I thought I would get citizenship at the end. I'm not sure I would come out for a two-year um, stay on deportation because you're turned in, already disclosed to the government that you're here without status. 
And so this to me, but even if the path to citizenship were bona fide, even if everybody who got on that path, and even if everybody who achieved citizenship, everybody who got on it achieved citizenship, we would still have to ask ourselves, is that, would those citizenship, uh, would, would that status of citizenship for a number of people be a good exchange for other people's lives and and still other people's servitude. And I don't think it's a good exchange. I know it's not an ethical one. Yeah. I think a, I think a better a, a better package would start with creating a visa, a visa X, a visa anything, that poor people from Latin America, Africa or Asia, that they themselves could get in line for they would not have to qualify for in in any other way than applying for it, paying a reasonable fee, like $350, waiting a reasonable amount of time, like three months, and cross the border legally. The minute we do that, we take migrant deaths out of the picture. The minute we do that, there is no reason for someone to become bound through servitude to an employer that doesn't care one bit about them. I would also demilitarize the border. The only re- Again, the only reason it was militarized was to hold back the very people that Clinton and the United States, um, Mulroney in Canada, and um, Carlos Salinas in Mexico, at the moment they signed that because they knew they were displacing millions of people. You can read that uh, in the agreement. That's the only reason they militarized the border. So to further militarize it against the very people we say we want to uh, enact this reform package for makes no sense. It's totally illogical. If we really care about people who have been displaced, illegal immigrants or undocumented migrants, we would demilitarize the border. We would not further militarize the border we would abolish the guest worker program. Again, with that visa X, there would be no reason to come through uh, uh, in a status, a legal status, but a status of servitude. There would be absolutely no reason for that. And if somebody wants citizenship, just give them a, you know, a simple path to citizenship. It doesn't need to take 13 years. Yeah, certainly not. And, um, I know, well, you mentioned migrant deaths, so I think um, one of the things is, of course, you might mention where the title The Second Cooler comes from, and as well, maybe you could share with our listeners some of the real-life stories that uh, you came across while filming the movie. Okay, yeah. The title The Second Cooler came about... um, after I had done an initial interview with Dr. Eric Peters, who was the Pima County, Arizona uh, medical examiner. And they have recovered so many bodies in Arizona in the thousands, and so many people die without identification. And so they have to house them in morgue refrigerators, and there's so many, they had to build a second morgue refrigerator and Dr. Peters referred to it as the second cooler. And so that just stuck with me. Um, and that, that was the, that, that's what became the title of the movie, The Second Cooler. Um, let's see, you had asked me something else. Oh, some of the oh, stories. Oh, maybe yeah. some of the real-life stories from the documentary. Well, yeah, well, we had gone back out. I had gone out to shoot some more and had gone back to uh, the medical examiner's office and um, had been able to go inside one of the refrigerators and shoot inside, get the shots of the body bags and the John Doe and Jane Doe tags on them um, and did some other shooting uh, around Pima County. And then uh, my shooter, um, Adam Valencia, and I were driving out with Mike Wilson, who's a tribal leader on the Tono O'odham Nation, 
which is uh, ground zero for migrant deaths. That's the area that the federal government has more or less herded people through. It's very dangerous. It's extravagantly large, just vast, very inhospitable. And we were going out with Mike because he spits water out on the lands of the Tonda O'odham uh, in defiance, actually, of tribal leadership who don't want water and food put out for migrants. So we were going out, and he, he sets the water jugs out in the shape of a cross, and he has four stations, and he's named them after the um, gospel writers. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we were out at the station called John putting out water, and we, we were coming back, and we came up on a migrant who was 18 years old. We stopped and talked to him. He had been in the desert uh, for nine days. Uh, the last they had been wandering, they were lost. He had had no food for the past three days. So we stopped and talked to them, talked to him. He was an indigenous man from Oaxaca, which is a, the southern in, from the southern, in the southern area in the south of Mexico. It's heavily indigenous, mm-hmm. and so he had come. What is that? A thousand miles. Um, told us that he had a, a wife and an, I think he's a baby that was about seven months old, and so he had been wandering. He had nothing to eat or drink for the past three days, and. So we gave him um, some water, and I think one of the ethically the most challenging things uh, I did during this movie was to ask him to give me an interview. Um, While we waited, he had also asked us to call Border Patrol, which Mike did, so he could turn himself in, So uh, because Border Patrol doesn't do much for you, but... um, they will sometimes just take you back over and put you back out in Mexico. And he preferred to do that to dying in the desert. Uh, so we interviewed him and it was, you know, he was, I don't know that you can tell it when you watch the movie, but he was very, very weak and his voice was very weak. Um, but he, he talked to us and then, you know, we took our um, camera and our you know, our light shields down and gave him some water and gave him a bag of food that Mike always keeps with him. He keeps um, like a gallon Ziploc bag filled with canned spaghetti and things of that nature that won't go bad and told him he needed to sit down and eat it all immediately because when Border Patrol arrived, they would take it away from him and throw it away. Um, So that was one encounter with a migrant. Um, We also got a long interview with Mike Wilson, which I couldn't put in the the movie, but it is in, it is a standalone, unedited interview that people can purchase if they want to um, on VHX TV, the um, online distributor. But he told us in great detail about how he found or helped to find the body of a man who had been lost. He gets a number of calls from people who are frantic. And um, the photograph of the man they found with his wife and his two kids is in the movie, but I couldn't really tell anything about their story. But, um, you know, there again, he had been out with um, a party and they had gotten lost and, uh, and he just died out there he's one of thousands they've recovered you know the figures differ because the various agencies record figure different types of figures but i think everybody agrees that a minimum of of seven thousand people have died including everybody from newborn infants to grandfathers and uh people out there uh, people like john fife and Others, you know, who talk to migrants on a daily basis say the real figure is probably three times that because the desert cleans itself very quickly. Um, 
Uh, I talked to John Fife, who appears in the movie. He's uh, Reverend John Fife with Southside Presbyterian Church. He was one of the founding members of the Sanctuary Movement. And uh, he's very involved in immigration issues. And and um, he said, I asked him how he would know that and sort of taking up my challenge, he, he went out in the desert once and saw where a deer had just died. And he kept going back every day. And at, at, at the end of the 10th day, there was no sign at all of that deer. Yeah, so there could be untold numbers of people that are just forgotten there because the process of of the body disappearing is pretty rapid, apparently. It's very rapid. So uh, I think John and John Fife and others have, you know, their guesstimate is probably three times that. So that would put it into um, 21,000. Yeah. Which, you know, at 5,000 is a human rights uh, uh, crisis. But 21,000, you know, it's just... And, and we hear a lot about the number, the numbers of deaths going down and the number of crossings going down. But what's not being taken into account with that um, is that people are going out into more and more remote areas of the desert where their bodies are not being found. As the border gets more militarized people are having to go to greater and greater lengths to try to cross. And the air, uh, the ground, ground zero is now shifting to Texas um, to, to the Rio Grande and to uh, other areas of Texas that are not quite so heavily militarized as Arizona. But, and so what we want to do now, talking about reform, is to completely close the border which doesn't mean people are going to stop. They'll go out into the Pacific. They're already dying in the Pacific. They'll go over. They'll dig under. They'll go through tunnels. You know, you can't stop people who are desperate. And so how this would, and to me, you know, more militarization inevitably leads to proportionately more migrants. So how this could ever be Thought as thought of as having anything to do with a progressive, much less a liberal approach to immigration, just totally escapes me. Yeah, I agree. And um, for people who just joined us, uh, this liberal fix. Um, our guest uh, tonight is uh, uh, Ellen Jimerson, who's the uh, uh, or not the author, but the filmmaker of the movie The Second Cooler. Um, and so uh, we're interviewing her, um, and uh, and uh, we're about half past the hour, but uh, certainly a compelling topic. Uh, I wanted to go back a little bit to, um, uh, you alluded to earlier, but uh, um, can you tell us how NAFTA and other so-called free trade agreements harm people and what relationship those agreements have to immigration, especially across our southern border, but maybe in other places <coughs> as well? Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> it's really not very complicated. What makes trade free is that protections are removed. So the big corporate producers, primarily in agriculture uh, and uh, automobiles, uh, and there's also an energy sector, they get to ship their goods to Mexico and Central America without paying taxes. That means they are put into direct competition with small campesino peasant uh, farmers uh, in Mexico or very small producers. So you've got businesses like Archer Daniels Midland or Cargill, that not only are monstrously big, who produce corn, for example, but they're also heavily subsidized by the federal government. They are producing corn and beans and sending it to Mexico, and they're they're able, without so much as a blink of an eye, to undersell these struggling uh, peasant farmers on top of that, while these 
huge monster corporations are being subsidized by the United States government, the subsidies that Mexico was providing to these small farmers of beans and corn and and other small producers were required to be lifted in order for Mexico to enter into the North American Free Trade Agreement. And the same kind of thing happened with CAFTA in Alabama. As I said, Fort Payne, Alabama, once prided itself on being the sock capital of the world. Uh, Fort Payne was as proud of its sock factories, most of which started in somebody's basement at some point in time. They were as proud of those sock factories as they are of the group Alabama, which also comes from Fort Payne. Enormous pride. And that was what the economy was built on. But when textile imports were removed, that just opened the flood to these cheap imported socks from the Dominican Republic and Honduras and China and other places. And these mills, although they had been thriving and earning good uh, incomes for their families and you know they had built a culture around these mills, um, they're gone. They couldn't compete. And, you know, my husband is a lawyer, and he talked to one of these mill owners one time, and, you know, the man was just devastated and didn't know what had happened. He didn't understand that it was because of CAFTA. Um, so it, it's happening everywhere, but specifically as relates to Mexico, um, the the the... One of the um, NAFTA was a phased in agreement. Some things were first and some things came later, but early on were corn and beans. And it just, it just devastated the economy, particularly the agricultural economy. Also, although it also hit the, the uh, small factories uh, as well. Uh, so, I mean, you look at the agreement and they say, we know there are going to be people displaced. Well, they displaced just in corn and beans, something like um, 2 million people. And those people have to go somewhere. And so then you've got the situation where you've got this, which I don't want to into the movie, but you've also got a situation, you know, you have these sort of like NAFTA plus or uh, free trade plus things across northern Mexico is this Maquiladora zone where you have companies, some of whom were in Alabama, uh, shut down their shops here um, and take and open them up in Mexico where they don't have to pay minimum wage, where they don't have to worry about unions, where they don't have to worry about pensions um, and just pay people $5 a day. And if they lose an eye or lose a finger, and the man, there is one man who does talk about that in the movie, they just fire them. But you know yeah, it was sold. It's a sold as a way of bringing jobs to people who need it, you know. And then we say, you know, even advocates say, well, people are only taking jobs Americans don't want. That's just not true. Jobs are being taken from Mexicans, and jobs are being taken from Alabamians, and jobs are being taken from people all over the United States um, through this shell game. Absolutely, and I, I think um, obviously the free trade agreement NAFTA that's uh, on Bill Clinton's watch, although he has bipartisan support in, in both houses of Congress, and, and we mentioned some of the flaws of the uh, the so-called immigration reform that's being promoted by a lot of supposedly liberal members of Congress. I think it's also worth pointing out in the current political environment uh, what might be wrong with what's coming from the political right, which is sort of a different, <laughs> more xenophobic, but but um, a different kind of destruction, if you will. And I know Donald Trump's presidential campaign has put illegal immigration back in the forefront of the news by, by demonizing uh, Latin Americans, specifically Mexican immigrants. And what consequences do you see arising out of out of that sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric and and its apparent popularity with with uh, at least GOP voters, if you believe the polls with Republican voters, what what do you see coming out of that possibly? Well, I mean, I think Trump is outrageous, 
And I think he is, he's very easy for people like me on the left to find repugnant. But at this moment in time, he's not near as dangerous to people who are here without status as President Obama is. That's President true. Obama has has said virtually the same thing. He doesn't use language quite as coarse. He doesn't use language anywhere near as coarse. And he is a very refined and elegant man. But he also refers to people who are here un- unlawfully, as he did in his speech in which he announced DAPA, as people who don't play by the rules, and how we all are offended when there are people who don't play by the rules. That's President Obama speaking. It's President Obama who has deported two million people. It's President Obama under whom deportations have skyrocketed and that we've we've developed these contracts with the private prisons to house 34,000 immigrant detainees a day. In my opinion, he's more dangerous because we give him such a pass. And we don't look, you know, we seem to respond to what's outrageous. But we don't respond to somebody who is polite, well-educated, very poised and elegant, and is saying virtually the same thing. Moreover, he's the president of the United States. He also has been given such a pass on deportation when he keeps saying he doesn't have the the, uh, power to stop it, which is just not accurate. He's a constitutional lawyer. I'm a historian. If I know it, he knows it. Lincoln freed the slaves with an executive order. Truman desegregated the United States Armed Forces with an executive order. Eisenhower desegregated the schools with an executive order. Roosevelt ordered the relocation of Japanese Americans to internment camps with an executive order. He has the power to issue an executive order, not an action, which is what DAPA and DACA are, which do not have the force of law. He has the power to issue an executive order, which has the force of law, and he doesn't do it. So to me, I think we're missing the point, we on the left, when we talk about how outrageous Trump is, but we don't talk about how outrageous President Obama is, or just some of these these things like Gutierrez feeling that servitude is a good way to get a start. Or even, I think two days ago, it came across to me, I'm a huge fan of Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor under Clinton. He totally understands free trade agreements and he totally is opposed to them. So he sends out a message that lands in my email box saying the economy is being rigged against poor and middle-class Americans. It's not fair to blame immigrants. Immigrants are not taking your jobs. Employers are taking your jobs. Therefore, we need to pass comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship. I'm baffled. Are Gutierrez and Robert Reich not actually looking at the content of this package? I'm baffled. Well, you go on and you see in the email that Robert Reich, this email has been sent out somehow in partnership with America's Voice. Well, America's Voice, big immigrant advocacy group that exists for one reason, one reason only, According to their own, um, uh, the sheet that uh, a sheet, the paperwork that an organization files when it's 501c3 to, and I forget what it's called, it's not Gold Star, but something like that. Um, their mission is one thing and one thing only to push through a comprehensive immigration reform package in the United States Congress. It says nothing about the content of that package. And I have been called by America's Voice to to work with them. 
And when I've told them I wouldn't say things that I thought were inaccurate, they have uninvited me to be part of their um, leadership team in Alabama. Uh, I don't trust Alabama. I, I, I don't get Robert Reich. Not, I mean, if you buy a house, you're not just going to go online and say, great McMansion for sale. You're going to get in your car and ride down and walk through the house and turn on the faucet. I mean, all you have to do is read the title of the package. I'm baffled. Yeah, I think at some level people have, I mean, I think this is one of the things that frustrates me with what passes for the left in the United States is that at some point it feels like, um, well, I don't know. I, I think Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and, and some of the people are fairly good about using rhetoric about inclusiveness or other things. But when you look at the policy, that the deportation policy or the trade policies and stuff, you're you're looking at things that are you know, that the movie pretty well documents are, are killing, literally killing people. They're destructive to lives and and they're also destructive to jobs and other things. And it it's kind of disappointing that I think at some level, some people have just, just the words comprehensive immigration reform. They, oh, well, we're not like, see, we want to give people a path to citizenship. But, 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 you know, if you look at the details of it, I mean, 13 years with a bunch of strings attached, is that really a path to citizenship? I mean, you know, it's kind of like we want to give this person a path to freedom and put them in prison for 13 years or something. Well, that's not a path to freedom. That's That's not probably. I mean, well, and citizenship is not really the issue. And here's an example of that. I mean, it it certainly needs to be part of the package. Certainly if people have been here for a while and they want to become citizens, there ought to be no problem with that. But here's, here's an example of why citizenship is not really the issue. I went to visit some school kids, uh, elementary kids, uh, on Sand Mountain, Alabama, which is an area where people grow tomatoes. And they use a lot of uh, undocumented people to pick those tomatoes. And the little kids get out there in the fields with their parents. Anyway, I went and talked to them uh, one time, and they were telling me what it's like to work in the fields and, you know, various things. And one little boy was about seven, and he told me that um, not too uh, not too many months or years prior, his grandmother had died or grandfather had died in Mexico. He was born here. He's a U.S. citizen, but his parents are not. They're undocumented. So to go back home to be with the grandfather uh, and family after the death, they had to go back uh you know, illegally, and they didn't couldn't leave him here by himself, so they took him with him. Well, to come back home, they're not going to put him on a bus to travel by himself from central Mexico to Alabama, so they bring him through the border illegally too. So he's out in the desert. You know, he's he's wandering. It, it, He's lucky, lucky to be out alive. What did his citizenship get him? What people need is the ability to cross borders freely, and they need a lawful status that cannot be revoked. Citizenship is only one aspect on a long, uh, a long continuum of sure. statuses that would be legal. Citizenship is for people who don't, uh, who want to make this their permanent home, or who, by you know some twist of fate, this has become their permanent home. But what most, but the people who are out in the Rio Grande, as we're speaking, Keith, they're not interested in citizenship. What they want is their life. Right. Yeah, so, I think you know, that's, that's one reason why I'm, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make the second cooler, not because I wanted to reach the hearts of the Trumps and the xenophobes and the racists of the world. I wanted to try to get to the liberals and the leftists and get people to look at what 
comprehensive immigration reform and free trade agreements actually are. Because if we on the left don't redefine the conversation and insist on something more ethical and something more humane, then who will? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, you know, and I think, yeah, there's so many important distinctions, and I think uh, so much of the debate is surrounding, surrounded around peripheral issues or misunderstandings of the issues rather than the, some of the core things you deal with in the movie and um, or in the documentary. And um, one of the other things, I guess, that, that is sort of um, related to the whole debate is, is um, I guess with Central America sometimes is is just how U.S. Uh, I guess not only economic policy but sometimes foreign policies influence things there. Did did you care to say anything about that? Maybe that's less current than than a factor that it used to be, but certainly has been a factor. Yeah, you know, you know, the movie it, it could have gone. You know, if I had the money and the finances and the and the team, I, I would have, I would love to have made a mini series or something that went on for a couple of months. You know, <laughs> but um, yeah, as an historian, I'm especially interested in in the history aspect of it, and I got such good footage, but I, I couldn't use it all except to try to make some general allusions to the fact that. America has a long history with Mexico and Central America, and that history is one of dominance, domination and subordination. You know, the Central American economies uh, were basically taken over by U.S. businesses like United Fruit uh, in, mm-hmm. in collusion with some of the uh, the more some of the few wealthy um european families in central america and and the economies were geared toward export toward sending bananas this way and pineapples and and that kind of thing and uh you know the united states uh i mean the, these us governments you know had military uh militias down there and so forth um, so, you know, our hands are dirty from the get-go. Our, our hands were dirty long before NAFTA. Uh, you know, we basically, uh, we overwhelmed, uh, Mexico, uh, militarily and, and took a large part of, uh, what is now Arizona, New Mexico from Mexico. Um, so, you know, we have a long history and one of domination, um, military, uh, economic, and socially. Um, and then even more recently, uh, in Guatemala, you know, in 19, in the 1980s when Reagan was president, um, uh, the, the dictator there, whose name was uh, Rios Montt, took out, undertook this campaign of genocide, uh, and it has been labeled genocide by the United Nations against indigenous people there. Um, and, uh, you know, and, but Reagan, you know, raised a toast to him. He was a born-again Christian uh, who was opposed to communism. And so um, tens of thousands of villages uh, were leveled and, and, you know, babies were strung up in trees and that kind of thing. And so, you know, now with with other hits uh, that Guatemala has taken, uh, including free trade agreements, you know, now there are entire Guatemalan villages that have relocated to Alabama. Uh, so, you know, these things don't happen without cause. Uh, people don't make these kinds of trips. Uh, they don't put their lives at stake. They don't leave the kids leave their kids behind and their grandkids behind unless there's some some dramatic cause, and that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing our history, we're seeing our more recent trade policies, uh, and all being uh, acted out. And that's what's going on around us. These are displaced people that we've displaced, to whom we owe a debt. And we need to stop doing it to begin with. Yeah, I agree. But, and but instead what, what of you, rolling back, no, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to no, say, I what do you think? Like, 
for those of us who are sort of average citizens with with limited amounts of political power, maybe individually, but but some power collectively, what what do you think we can do, sort of, to pressure our our leaders, maybe, to make more humane decisions? Or <laughs> um, I think that's a that's that's a sixty four thousand dollar question, and I think you know I think we have to start by saying no, no Gutierrez. Indentured servitude is not a good idea. Uh, reform at the cost of militarization is not a good idea. We have got to say no. I think we also have yeah. to be very, very aware of the power of these immigrant advocacy groups that exist apparently just to keep the funding coming in. And as long as they can get groups of Latinos together holding up signs saying the time for reform is now and taking their pictures and sending it back and lobbing out the word reform and saying we need to welcome our neighbors while supporting comprehensive immigrants, we've got to say no. We've got to challenge them. We've got to challenge religious leaders who do the same thing, like Sister uh, Sister uh, Campbell who's also got her own movie coming out called The Nuns on the Bus. You know, she was just, I adore um, Stephen Colbert, but she he had her on his show, and he was just, you know, he found her adorable. <laughs> and she is, you know, she and I have been in kind of a, a dispute in, 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 in pub, um, published disputes, because she is just, you know, she will not reconsider comprehensive immigration reform. You know, she's bound and determined that it's a step in the right direction. And when I ask her, what part of more militarization is a step in the right direction from the amount of militarization we have now? Or what part of more servitude is a step in the right direction from the amount of servitude we have now, and she says, uh, well, you don't understand politics, or you might be, you know, you you might keep your hands clean, but, you know, you're you're not getting down in the trenches, something like that. And it, to me, it's, it's just bizarre. You know, we have to say, Jim Wallace, you know, left and right, you've got these high-profile religious leaders who are not reading the package. I mean, I don't go to the grocery store and get a package off the shelf without reading to see what the ingredients are. Who promotes a package designed to have a profound impact on the lives of other human beings without reading not the fine print, but the title? (laughs) I know it is. It's kind of mind-boggling. I guess they just... It's as if the words um, reform just mesmerize them, and it doesn't matter what's what's in the reform. And 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 it's unfortunate because, like you said, so many of these people are are respected, or or people on the supposedly on the left who are are sort of seen as these um, great leaders of faith, or or great leaders of uh, for for reform or, or liberal policies and yet yet the package that they're promoting is is reactionary or, or dangerous so it's uh, you know i think i mean it's worse than what we've got <laughs> yeah just leave people in the alone wrong direction. That's what you've got. hopefully your, your documentary if we can get it out to the right people i mean some of these people i think um you know and i could be wrong i mean power sometimes does strange things to people, but I mean, some of the people like Robert Reich and stuff, you, you got to believe somewhere that their hearts are in the right place. So somehow their minds have been warped by not, you know, I don't know. So, so maybe if we can well, get the information yeah. out to them, some of them will wake <laughs> up and say, Hey, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the way to go. Exactly. I mean, if I could just get Robert Reich to, if I could get the movie in his hands or you know somebody who uh is whose job is not tied to a certain point of view, which I think his is not but uh yeah, it's just baffling to me 
But I appreciate yeah, I, I appreciate your interest, and I appreciate your saying that, and I hope everybody will watch, and I hope they will begin to really, you know, think about what what is comprehensive immigration reform, and you know, do we as as decent people have some obligation to know what it is we're promoting? I could yeah, and, and I think it can awaken people because I think. I was always kind of skeptical of some of the immigration reform stuff anyways because I was a little bit aware that there was... Well, I always had a problem with the militarization of the border, but I don't think it's until last year when it, when we had you on, a guest, on as a guest the first time that I was as aware of the, the problems with the guest worker problem as I am now. So that mm-hmm. was eye-opening to me. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. I had some concerns about it, but I certainly wasn't aware of how how close it is to endangered servitude or slavery. So, so I mean, you know, that, that made a believer in me or, yeah. or, or you know, a, somebody to understand um, just what's really at stake here and what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so hopefully other people well, will have the same voila moment or whatever. <laughs> and I guess well, while this I thought... hour just flew by, but go ahead. I'm sorry. It did. Oh, I was just going to say, um, Greg Shell, who is an attorney uh, who who is, has expertise in the guest worker program, uh, just watched my movie last week, and he told me, or he sent me an email. He said it was one of the most um, what nuanced nuanced treatments of the subject he had seen. Uh, so I, I really appreciate it when when people who have expertise in these various areas say. You know, you did a really good job of of laying out the basics of this. Very good, yeah. So hopefully it'll get um, seen by the right people and maybe change the shape of the debate in this country. Hopefully change it in a big direction and not just a little bit. But we'll, I guess we'll see how that plays out. But I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think this is a very, very important topic and so I'm excited about that. Um, um, we have about two minutes left. I was going to say, um, where can people see the movie now, or can they purchase it? Um, what, yeah, what's I'm the glad best you way asked. to get the movie into people's eyes? <laughs> well, for now, they just need to, on November 2nd, go to my website, thesecondcooler.com, and there will be some um, buy buttons there. They will be able to order it. They will be able to either rent it or buy it online, and there will be various packages from the just the movie, uh, the movie and the soundtrack, all up to a box set with uh, like 10 unedited interviews, one with Mary Bauer of the Southern Poverty Law Center, one with Mike Wilson of the Tohono Domination and others. Uh, and then from another distributor, they'll be able to buy a DVD or a CD. So... That's too complicated for people to remember. So November 2nd, go to thesecondcooler.com and we'll take care of you. Very good. And we'll put up a link, too, on the Liberal Fix uh, website. Um, probably pull one up uh, shortly after the show, but also we'll we'll do it again on November 2nd to give people a reminder Thank so they can you. go there from there. And I'll probably do the same on my personal page if I remember. I guess if I remember one, I'll probably remember both. But <laughs> so well, once to, again, thank I'll you try. so much for joining us this weekend, and and hopefully for our thank listeners, um, they learn a lot too. Thank you again, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And maybe we'll have you on the show again uh, sometime in the future. I would love that, Keith. Thanks so much, and say hello to Naomi. You bet. All we'll righty. Do and, uh, On behalf of Keith and Naomi and our guest, Ellen, we want to wish everybody a safe and and happy weekend, and we'll catch you again next week.